Well, good morning, church family. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And yes, this is historically a resurrection passage, and we're going to see how it all ties together uh, to Advent. As uh, Juan mentioned, this series, Longing For, right? The word Advent literally means longing or waiting. And so we're talking about what we learned from the first Advent and how that helps us long uh, for the return of Jesus. So today, uh, Longing For a Hero. This turns out to be a timely message because once again this weekend, a superhero is dominating the box office. Anybody already seen the new Spider-Man movie? Yeah, that's what I thought. Several of you have already seen it. Uh, And so I've heard it's incredible. So let's do a little straw poll this morning. Let's talk about your favorite superhero. How many of you guys are old school and you love Superman? He was kind of the original, right? Show of hands, yeah? Any Batman fans out there? Yeah, see a few. All right, let's jump over to the Marvel Universe. Any Spider-Man fans? Timely. All right, how about Captain America? That's my all-time favorite. Yeah, there we go. All right, several. How many of you, Juan Sally is your favorite superhero? All right. Yeah, see? Yes, that's it. I knew. First service the same. We have a hero among us. And so we all love one. And uh, it is fun uh, to think about and talk about superheroes. And so, but it's interesting to me. This is, get this, the 28th movie in the Marvel superhero series. 28 movies now. Started back in 2007. They kind of started with Iron Man 1 and it's grown from there. Do you know how much money these movies have made? $23 billion with a B. $23 billion. That doesn't include the t-shirt, the lunchbox, the underwear. It doesn't include any of that stuff, right? Just the movies alone have made $23 billion. And so what is it about these superhero movies that keeps us coming back time and time again? What is it about the longing for a hero that we have? Well, I read an article this week written by a doctor in the Journal of Media and Psychology. Yes, there is such a journal. He says this, We are drawn to the modern superhero derived primarily from comic books because he or she combines characteristics of the classic heroes of the Greco-Roman tradition with the more humble and God-fearing heroes of the Judeo-Christian traditions. So let's lean into that a little bit. Think about this for a moment. There was an author, a sociologist in the late 1940s by the name of Joseph Campbell. And even back then, before all of these billion-dollar superhero movies, there were the comic books and the novels and the stories. And so he began to recognize that they all shared common themes. And so he wrote a book in 1949. Joseph Campbell is the author. It's called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in this book, he talks about the hero's journey. And by the way, if you want to be a screenwriter, if you want to write novels, you need to read this book. Because nearly every movie and book that Hollywood produces, that's produced in our country, right, it follows the hero's journey. Here are the basic steps. Step one, a hero is called to leave the comfort of their ordinary world behind. Step two, in the new and unfamiliar world, they face tests and enemies while collecting allies. Step three, the hero experiences an ordeal that leads to their death or an experience like death. Step four, the hero is resurrected. Step five, the hero returns to his allies and brings blessings with him. Does this story sound familiar to anybody else? There's a reason why. Whether it's superheroes like Spider-Man or wizards like Harry Potter or Jedis like Luke Skywalker, there is a yearning that God has put in all of us for a bigger story. We want to know that good wins in the end over evil. 
We want to think, right, that we're on the right side of that story, that we are with the good guys. We want all of the craziness of this world to make sense to us. And ultimately, we all recognize deep down inside that we need to be rescued, that we need a hero to save us. And so pay attention the next time you read a book, a novel, the next time you watch a movie for the hero's journey, because that hero's journey is an echo of the one true story. All stories point back to his, and we celebrate his coming this time of year. But here's the interesting thing. His first followers, after he was crucified, were afraid that they were in the wrong story. When Jesus was crucified, they thought this is the end of the movie. People don't come back from the dead. But the death of Jesus wasn't the end of Jesus. That's where we pick up the story today. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through the first part of 21. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping, we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, those words we were hoping words that we've all spoken at one time or another. We put our hope in a lot of things. Today, would we clearly see that you are the hope of the human heart, that you are the hope that we have been looking for. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. Well, we spent a good chunk, as a matter of fact, the first half of 2021 looking at the gospel of Luke. And so every time I go to Luke's gospel, I'm amazed as you are once uh, and again about his depth of his writing, about how he weaves together stories so effectively, about how he set out to write a gospel based on eyewitness testimony so that we may be certain of the things that took place concerning Jesus. And I love that Luke alone captures this story from us, obviously from an eyewitness perspective from someone who was there. And so Jesus had been crucified. There had been many messiahs, so-called wannabe messiahs, to come in Israel. They had been killed along the way, proven to be frauds. Their believers scattered. And so these two that are leaving Jerusalem have that exact same wave of emotions that are coming over them on this day. It says in the text that that same day, so this is Resurrection Sunday, what we now know as Easter Sunday, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
And they, together they were discussing everything that had taken place. The text tells us that one of them was named Cleopas. We don't have the name of the other, so we're not exactly sure who these two were. Some scholars do think that the Clopas, who's mentioned in John chapter 19, who was an uncle of Jesus, the brother of Joseph the carpenter, that that might have been just a variant spelling, so it could be the same guy. And Mary is mentioned as well. Lots of Marys in the New Testament. This is another Mary, so this could have been Clopas and Mary. We're not exactly sure. Some scholars are pretty convinced, though, that it was a married couple because it's says they were discussing and arguing. (laughs) There you have it. But as they're taking their journey, every step more discouraged than the one before, it says this, Jesus himself came near. You see, that's where every story changes. Jesus himself came near. And I love this picture. Because I believe spiritually this is what Jesus does. He comes alongside of those who have honest questions. He comes alongside of the hurting. And Jesus walks with them. It says, interestingly enough, they were prevented from recognizing him. Now on a human level, they didn't expect, and we know that one of the proofs of the resurrection is is that none of Jesus' closest disciples really expected him to rise from the dead. They all missed it. So just on a human basis, they knew, right? Dead people don't come back to life. But this word is called the divine passive in a supernatural sense as well at this moment. The Holy Spirit is preventing them from recognizing who Jesus really is. Kind of like our superhero theme for the day, right? He's got his divine mask on and they can't tell that it's him quite yet. Then he asked them, and I love this, that Jesus asked this leading question. What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And it says they stopped walking. They stood still in their tracks and they looked discouraged. We've all seen that look before, haven't we? We see it in the faces of people all of the time. People who are discouraged, whether it's the events of their life, whether it's the behavior of their children, whether it's their job opportunities not being what they wanted, whether it's a broken relationship, there is a certain look that someone has when they're just defeated and they're discouraged and they're beat up by life. And the one named Cleopas answered him. I love the humor in this, right? Are you the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? I mean, just use your imagination for a moment to imagine right being Jesus. And I love that Jesus teases it out more. What things? (laughs) Go on, like tell me, you know. Tell me about these things. And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people and our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they, they crucified him. And here's the key phrase. But we were hoping that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. As a pastor, as a friend, as a dad, as a brother, those words, if you hear them from somebody, I was hoping. Those are words to key in on because those are keys to somebody's soul. I was hoping that this job promotion, I was hoping that this achievement, I was hoping that this relationship, I was hoping that this opportunity, right, that that was going to be the thing to finally fulfill what I had been longing for, what I had been looking for. So what was their hope? Well, that Jesus was going to be the hero to redeem Israel. 
So that's what we're going to work through today. Why were Cleopas and his friend, his companion, why were they hoping that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel? Well, number one, we need to recognize that there was a hero that was promised to God's people. Who can redeem Israel? This promised one. It had been a difficult season for God's people. For almost a thousand years, they had been subjected to kind of constant warfare and strife. It was what the Jews viewed as the golden age of Israel, the reign of David and Solomon. And if you really read your Bible, you see their hearts were filled with a little bit of nostalgia as much as reality. We always look back, right? We talk about the good old days. Remember when. But for God's people, their hearts were fixed on that moment. And so they remembered that through their exile, through all of the warfare and battles they'd been through, through all the unfaithfulness of their leaders, that God had whispered a promise. A promise that had grown stronger throughout the pages of the Old Testament. A promise about a Messiah, an anointed one. A hero who would come and rescue God's people from their enemies. And kind of like a sketch that begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And gets filled in a little bit more the farther you go in the Old Testament. The people were looking for a specific kind of hero. Let's look at a handful of these prophecies today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 3.15. Let's go all the way back to what scholars consider to be the very first whisper. Some call this the first gospel. Because this is in the curse. As God is dealing with the sin of Adam and Eve, as he speaks to the serpent, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we hear this. Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility, your translation may say enmity, that's the Hebrew word for war. I will put hostility between you and the woman. God is speaking to the serpent here. Between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so from the very moment of the fall, the very moment that sin entered the world, God already begins to tell us about his plan. Now, number one, he lets us know life is going to be a battle. Good versus evil. Why are we drawn to good versus evil stories? Because of right here. God tells us that is going to be the reality, the backdrop on which our lives are played out. The descendants of Eve are going to be at battle with the serpent, right, and all of his offspring until God comes back to put an end to it forever. And yet there's a promise hidden right here in the curse. In that promise, Eve is going to have children. She is going to have descendants. Now it's interesting here, no earthly father is mentioned. But this descendant of Eve will one day come back And the serpent will try to strike him, and yet he will do what? He will crush his head. This is who this Messiah is going to be. How is this Messiah going to be born? Go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We know that all throughout the storyline of the Bible, we discover things. The Messiah is going to be born of the line of David. God continues to make his covenant and his promises. And Isaiah, speaking in a difficult and a dark time to God's people, says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew, in the opening to his gospel, makes it clear, this is the prophecy that was fulfilled when Mary, the virgin, gave birth to Jesus. Emmanuel, God is with us. Where is he going to be born? Turn with me to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah the prophet says this, 
O Bethlehem, Epaphra, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you. He will be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. He is the ancient one. Really timeless is the way that you could translate that in the Hebrew. So he is going to be born in Bethlehem, a town which had little notoriety. Of course, it was the city of David, but it was just a little outpost now, a little hamlet about five miles from Jerusalem in the first century. It was nearly forgotten other than the fact that Herod had built himself a fortress on the outskirts of the city to keep his control over that part of the world. Other than that, Bethlehem was just a little village with a few shepherds. It was pretty unimportant. But from there would come the Messiah. And then why, why would he come? Turn with me back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, because this is stunning. I want you to think about this. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born about the Messiah. Isaiah writes, who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now in the Bible, the arm represents the mighty power of God to save. Translation, his strong arm is the only one who can reach down into our mess and rescue us. So to whom has the Lord of the arm been revealed? Well, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. It's the life of Jesus, what his life was like, and then what he came to do. Yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains, but we in return regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep and have turned our own way, but the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Understand that this was centuries before Roman crucifixion would even be invented. And yet, what was Isaiah seeing 700 years before the birth of Jesus? Exactly why he came to bear our sins, pierce for our transgressions, for our iniquities. And so you can go on and on throughout the Old Testament. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of allusions and references to this king, this Messiah, this hero who was promised. What's fascinating is that over time, let's talk apologetics for just a moment, because there have been people who have said, well, this just happened by accident. It just happens to be coincidence, right, that this Jesus of Nazareth just kind of seemed to fulfill a lot of these things. Well, let me go ahead and give you the odds of just eight of these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in one life. Here is the odds, according to statisticians. One in 100 million billion. That's the odds that just eight of these prophecies would be fulfilled in one lifetime. Let me give you an illustration that explains that. If you were to take silver dollars and to stack them two feet high and cover the entire state of Texas with those silver dollars and place a black X with a Sharpie on one of them, hide it in the stack somewhere, and then blindfold a guy, tell him to step into the state of Texas and pick the exact coin that you marked, that's the same odds. Do you see how compelling it is? That Jesus was the one who fulfilled not just eight, but dozens of prophecies. 
There are others, of course, who said, well, this Jesus of Nazareth guy came around and being a good Jew, he knew the Old Testament. And so he just planned out his life so that he would fulfill all of these things. Did we just read Micah chapter 5? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem? Let me ask you a question. Did you decide where you were born? I don't think so. I don't think so. And so you think in this moment, right, it's illogical to think that one man, right, could orchestrate his life in such a way to fulfill all of these prophecies. Unless you are who? Truly God. Truly the hero of the story. So it's true, right? It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. But in this moment, remember, Cleopas and his friend, they aren't exactly thinking clearly. They're thinking emotionally. Why are they so emotional? Not only, number one, was there a hero promise, but number two, there was a hero that they longed for. There was a hero that they longed for. Now, we have to remember that there were 400 years of what we would call prophetic silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that there was nothing happening in history. Been with us in Coffee House Theology. We covered this a couple weeks ago with my friend Brian Ball. But let's take a quick historical journey because I know you guys wanted a history lesson this morning, right? It's what you came hoping I would give you. But the reality is, is this helps set the stage for us to understand why their hearts were longing for a king so much. Let me put up some pictures that represent four empires. By the way, foreseen by Daniel in his prophecies in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. You see, after the exile. And one of those pictures, the bearded dude, he is Cyrus the Great or Cyrus the Wise. He's the Persian king who conquered the Babylonians. He allowed God's people to return to Jerusalem. By the way, not very many of them did, but a remnant returned wanting to rebuild the temple, wanting to rebuild the city walls, rebuilding their homes, trying to rebuild their lives. But all did not go well for them because another guy stepped onto the stage of history not long after Cyrus. His name you might remember from your history books. Anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? His father wanted to conquer and unite all of Greece. He thought that was a pretty big chore. Alexander, he wanted to conquer the whole world. And so by the age of 33, he built the biggest empire that part of the world had ever seen. It stretched, of course, from Greece to Egypt, all the way to India, including what we would now know as Israel. And so God's people from this point forward right, became kind of pawns for this 400 years in the, the, the struggle of superpowers that were all around them. Alexander the Great had to spin off his empire to his generals. When he did so, things got really messy for a season for God's people. Of course, the Romans began their empire building as well on the heels of Alexander the Great's empire, following many of those steps. And so mostly things went well for you if you were a pawn in the Roman Empire, as long as you paid your taxes, as long as you didn't cause too much trouble. But finally, the Romans put a ruler over Israel who would not allow God's people to worship on the Sabbath, who set up a statue to Zeus and forced them to worship him, who decided to sacrifice a pig on the altar of the temple. And so God's people had enough of this and they rose up in revolt. We call it the Maccabean revolt. And for a season, the Jews had their independence, but sadly, they couldn't get along with each other either. And so the Romans came back to crush the rebellion. And they put a guy into power that you might have heard of from the Bible. His name is Herod the Great. He was paranoid. He was brilliant. He was cruel. He was the world's template for a hero at that time. We're going to talk more about him next Sunday. But what I want you to see is this. You know, you've heard some of these names in your history class. 
But how many of you have forgotten the battles and the dates and all of it, right? Because it's exhausting to try to keep up with it all. Well, in the same way, God's people were exhausted. They were worn out from all of the ups and downs. And so they tried to respond. And so they split into factions. And that's where you get the characters that we see in the New Testament and their allegiances. You have the Pharisees who said, what we need to do for God to return power to his people is we need to follow the law. Exactly. That's why they were so zealous. That's why they had scribes. That's why they were so exacting in their desire to try to interpret and follow the law. Exactly. Because they felt like if they didn't, God wouldn't bless them and they would be stuck under oppression forever. You had the Sadducees, kind of the aristocrats, the elites of the culture. And so for them, they wanted the ultimate aristocrat, right, to come back and and save them. You had a group that went off to the desert called the Essenes to live like monks. And so their desire was to be as pure as they could, thinking if we're a pure people, God will surely honor that. You had the Herodians, a group of Jews who totally sold out, like the tax collectors, good examples of them in the New Testament, to Herod. Hey, if we align ourselves with Herod, then maybe eventually... We'll earn his favor and we'll get to do what we want to do. And then, of course, you had the zealots, those people who wanted to overthrow Rome as revolutionaries. So you had all of these competing factions in the nation trying to determine what the best course of action was. Doesn't sound anything like our nation today, does it? You get the point? God's people were longing for a hero. And for 400 years, the prophetic voice had been silent. Had God forgotten about us? Did God remember us? What's God going to do? Will he keep his promises? Thomas Cahill, the historian, he puts it this way. He says, it has been a long time since the Jews have been safe. The happy Davidic kingdom has been torn in two in the generations after David so long ago that it now felt like a myth. By this point, one conqueror seemed neither better nor worse than another. In a world that worshipped military might and ever larger spheres of influence, the Jews could not expect to live in freedom save a miracle. And a miracle is just what an oppressed people are wont to hope for. And so all of a sudden, Jesus of Nazareth bursts on the scene in Galilee. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. He's unlike anybody, anybody has ever seen before. And he draws these followers to him. But what happens? He's crucified. And so once again, the people who were his followers, this band of disciples and the others close to them, feel defeated and discouraged. They had gotten their hopes up. What's the only thing worse than having no hope? Getting your hopes up and having them crushed. And that's what they're feeling at this time. But here's the reality of what's taking place, and it's why this story is so powerful. Because Jesus is not dead. He is very much alive. And so our third movement this morning is to recognize that there was a hero that the whole world needs. Now, Cleopas, he gets part of the story right. He says, there was a Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet powerful in ministry and message, right? In action as in speech and in speech before God and all of the people. Powerful prophet, yes. But here was the part that he missed. Despite Jesus' predictions, despite all of the realities of what the prophet said, right? That this Messiah would also be a suffering servant. There's something in our mind that wants the hero to shoot straight to glory. We know now 
that for sin to be overcome, something drastic had to take place. So Cleopas and his companion and the early disciples, right, they were guilty, as so many of us are, of a selective reading of Scripture. They heard the things that they wanted to hear about the Messiah. The best example that I can share about this is the selective hearing of my own children. We'll be like on a trip. We're about to get home. I remind the kids, when we get home, I need help unpacking. You have to walk and feed the dog, right? We need to be sure that we get all the dirty clothes, right? Going with the laundry. Like I give my list of things we have to do. We hit the driveway. My kids disappear and we don't see them for days. (laughs) Hey, I thought I told you, you need to walk the dog. You need to help mom and I unpack. You need to help these things. We didn't hear you. But we can be driving down the road. And I don't even know that I say it out loud. I think sometimes I even just think it, right? You know how after you're married for a while, you just kind of communicate telepathically? And so I'll think to myself, and maybe I whisper it, we should stop for ice cream. From the very back of the SUV. Did you say ice cream? Yeah, let's stop. It's amazing what our children hear when they want to. I heard that, amen. We all do it though, don't we? We're selective. We see and hear the things that we want to hear. It's called confirmation bias. And so Cleopas and his friend, his companion, despite their proximity to Jesus, right? Somehow the prediction after prediction that he had made of his death and his resurrection, they had missed it. You see, they had a theology, they had a gospel, but that gospel wasn't big enough for a crucifixion and a resurrection. And so I love I love what happens next in the story. They begin to talk about the women and what happened. We left off right at the, in the middle of verse 21. So Cleopas says, besides all this, it's the third day, hint, hint, wink, wink, since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. You see, their head can't get around the resurrection. And so they see this is even bad news, the empty tomb, right? A bunch of women went and they came back all hysterical. We sent the guys to go check it out too, right? They didn't find the body, so his body must have been stolen. At this point, it's still all negative. And now Jesus, right? He just can't take it anymore. He said to them, how foolish and slow are you to believe that the prophets have spoken All that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Yes, death, evil, sin had to be dealt with once and for all. And now, right, the king is alive. The king has returned. And so then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Oh, what a Bible study that must have been. Can you imagine what it was like for Cleopas and his traveling companion to hear Jesus start where we did a few moments ago in Genesis to point out that he's the seed of the woman. To go on to Exodus as he describes himself as the Passover lamb. To point to Leviticus where he is our high priest. Numbers where he was our cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Jesus pointed out how he's the prophet likened to Moses and Joshua, the captain of our salvation, and judges, our judge and lawgiver. 
and Ruth, our kinsman redeemer, and Samuel, our trusted prophet, Jesus went on, king in Chronicles, he's our reigning king, Ezra, our faithful scribe, Nehemiah, the rebuilder of the broken down. And Esther, he pointed out how he is Mordecai, and Job, our day spring from on high, and Psalms, the great shepherd, and Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, the wisdom, and Song of Solomon, the lover of our soul. And Isaiah, the Prince of Peace, and Jeremiah, the Righteous Branch, and Lamentations, the Weeping Prophet, and Ezekiel, the Wonderful, Four-Faced Man, and Daniel, the Fourth Man in the Fiery Furnace, and Hosea, the Faithful Husband Married to the Backsliding Bride, and Joel, the Restorer of What the Locusts Have Eaten, and Amos, He's Our Burden Bearer, Obadiah, He's Mighty to Save, Jonah, Our Resurrection Hope, and Micah, the Babe Born in Bethlehem, and Nahum, He's the Avenger of the Lord's Elect." And Habakkuk, he's the evangelist. And Zephaniah, the fountain open for uncleanliness. And Malachi, he's the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. He's Abel's sacrifice, Noah's rainbow, Abraham's ram, Isaac's well, Jacob's ladder, Moses' rod, David's sling, the bright and morning star, the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000, the rose of Sharon, the water in the rock. He is the child born to us, the son given to us. The government is upon his shoulders. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. You see, he is the hero the world is longing for, the hero the world needs. He's the only one who can fill the God-shaped hole that's inside every single one of us. And what breaks his heart is to watch us chase after lesser gods, lesser things, trying to be the hero that we need to fill up what's lacking in our own life. That's why at Advent we celebrate that he came because he's the only one who can fill us in all ways. Every story points to him. Every superhero owes their existence, so to speak, to him. Because that story resonates with our hearts because it bears echoes of the one true story. Years ago, I saw this illustrated beautifully by my own kids when they were young. We have this tradition, we collect nativity sets as we travel throughout the world and have opportunities and connect with mission partners. We have nativity sets It reminds us to pray for those partners. It reminds us that Jesus truly is the savior of the whole world. And it's fascinating to see how each culture represents the nativity. And so those are on display at our house during the Christmas season. So when the girls were little, there was one nativity set, the one we bought from like Sears, that we let them play with. And so one day I came downstairs to see baby Jesus... Santa Claus, Polly Pocket, Fisher Price figurines, Barbie ornaments, and yeah, a couple of action figures as well, all gathered around baby Jesus. I looked it up online a couple years ago. We're not the only ones. Here's some other nativity sets that parents have captured Spider Man, Superman, right? Wonder Woman. All of your various figurines and action figures, all paying homage to the one to whom they owe their existence. Because you see, for you and I, in the big story, we want to be the hero, but we have to be honest. We're the villain. You see, Romans 5.10 reminds us that we were the very enemies of God. And yet God sent his son, Emmanuel, to us the mighty arm of salvation to rescue and to save us when we could not save ourselves. So let's all come 
to Jesus. Bend the knee and recognize that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you pray with me this morning? Whatever you're hoping for this holiday season. I'm not talking about what's on your wish list. I'm talking about where are your true hopes? What are you looking to save or rescue you? Would you identify that, confess that to Jesus today? Maybe it's power. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's prestige. I don't know what that idol is that you've constructed and placed on the throne of your heart. But today, we recognize that there is only one true hero. There is only one true king. His name is Jesus. And he came to save his people, to set them free. And he can set you free today as well. Because that longing that you have in your heart, it will not be satisfied by anything less than him. As a matter of fact, God will frustrate your life because he loves you so much that he will not allow you to be satisfied in anything less than him. So today, would you confess what you are hoping in? And would you place your hope and your trust solely in the one who is all that we just recounted and more. Your king has come and your king invites you to know him. So today, would you be set free? Would you be redeemed? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the Emmaus Road story and that we know your first coming pointed directly to your resurrection. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were born to die so that you could live again, conquering sin and death so that we can turn from our sin and ourselves to the true Savior of the world. And it's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing in response this morning.